0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'm at the National Annual Quaker Gathering of Friends General Conference which means I'm rubbing shoulders with all kinds of activists, and Lynn Fitzhugh is one of the long-term stars in that realm. For over 16 years, her focus has been fighting climate change, including founding 350seattle.org, co-founding Faith Action Climate Teams of Seattle, and working for Thurston Climate Action Team for almost three years. In recent years, she's founded and works with Restoring Earth's Connection, working on the necessary paradigm shift, foundational to address climate change. Lynn Fitzhugh joins me in person in Monmouth, Oregon. Lynn, thank you so much for finally joining me for Spirit in Action. You're welcome. And I acknowledge that the fault is all mine. (laughs) Three years ago, we talked about doing this, and I've never forgotten it. It's just... Number one, I'm not an organized person, but number two, the world is full of rich and wonderful people doing world healing work. And fortunately, you're one of them, and I'm so grateful you could join me. The interesting thing for me is I got to know you in the 1980s, where I guess you'd say peace work was what was driving you. I was living in Milwaukee. I think you were down in Chicago. You were traveling around. You visited the Quakers in Milwaukee. So I got to know of you at that point. So when I reconnect with you many years later, your work is mainly with the Earth. Could you talk a little bit topographically, subject-wise, how you started with peace, or maybe that's not where you started, and how you got to Earth work?
1: Sure. As a Quaker, I started out doing work that was really related to all of our testimonies, so peace, simplicity, equality, etc., sort of did that in a variety of different ways through about age 30 and having a child. And then I became a single parent, which does not lend itself very well to being an activist. So I had about a seven-year hiatus where I was not doing any kind of activism, which was hard for me. Then I remarried and it became possible for me to have some time and energy to devote to it again. And so I sort of looked around and said, okay, out of the set of possibilities here of what you could work on, what is the right thing to work on? And what just was clear as day to me was every other issue I had worked on would be destroyed by climate change. And so climate change really came to front and center. And I was really clear that that was what I needed to work on. But that was 2007, so I've been at this for a little while now. And back then, it was a very hard issue to organize around because for most people, it was a completely invisible issue. They couldn't see any sign that there was climate change. And while there were always people willing to believe the science and say, you know, yeah, you know, it's real, and there were other people who did not believe it was real, Even organizing the people who thought it was real was hard because it didn't seem like that eminent of a threat. So I spent quite a bit of time back then just trying to figure out actually how to organize around it. Eventually, 350, which is an international organization that takes its name from the idea that we needed to get down to 350 parts per carbon if we were going to be in a survivable zone, was doing a lot of organizing. And Bill McKibben, who is probably the most visible leader of climate change action in the world, came to Seattle and spoke. And Seattle was where I was living. And they had to move it to a bigger venue because of how many people wanted to come hear him speak. There were 2000 people came and heard him speak, and there had been no organizing around it. The people all came in the auditorium and they all left. And I was just, the organizer in me was beside myself. I was like, there should have been people signing them in. We should have captured all their emails and their phone numbers. I was sitting with what to do about that. And I came to Friends General Conference, I met a woman who'd been in one of my previous climate change workshops, and she was talking about having a a 350 chapter in her town. And I was like, they have chapters? This was news to me, I didn't know they had chapters. And this is one of those lovely full circle moments, you know, where she'd come in my workshop, she'd been motivated to go do some work, she went and did that, and then she gave me the answer I needed. I knew there was a 350 Washington chapter that seemed to once a year go make the number 350 with human bodies, which I didn't see as a very productive way of creating change. But I called that woman and I said, how would you feel if I started a 350 chapter, a Seattle 350 chapter? And unbeknownst to me, her husband was dying. He was very close to death. She was so happy to unload (laughs) the responsibility for this. So I called other people I knew who had concerns about climate change. And within a month, we had launched a 350 chapter in Seattle. Within a year, It was one of the biggest chapters in the country, and we were doing a lot of amazing things to try to stop exploding oil trains that come through Seattle and working in conjunction with the Sierra Club on stopping coal terminals. At one point, there were five terminals canceled in the state of Washington. I have to say Sierra Club was more responsible for that than we were, but it was a pretty amazing time. At a certain point I did step back from that and I decided I wanted to do climate work in a more faith based way. I wound up and this is the only organization I've started in my life that I started by accident, but I I accidentally started a group called Faith Action Climate Team and your next question is gonna be how do you accidentally
0: How do you accidentally start a, a f- organization. another organization? Yeah. yeah
1: myself and another woman had just thought, oh, it'd be fun to get together all the activists we knew that came from a congregation of some sort. And we thought we were just getting us together for one conversation. We just thought it would be a good conversation. And the conversation that we focused on was asking everyone in the room, how can faith communities have a powerful moral voice for actually changing what's happening with our climate struggle? And, you know, mostly people talked about things that were happening in their congregations, etc. But there was this hunger in the room of, we want to do more. It's the only thing I've ever organized where people called me up and said, can I come? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it must not be the only thing. No,
1: really. That's the only thing where people have called me up and said, can I be invited? You know, it was quite interesting. Anyway, somebody came to that with the idea that she wanted there to be a faith-based climate conference, And that kind of fascinated everybody. We were like, oh, wow, what would that be like? So we organized one, and it was quite fascinating it was different. It was different than other conferences that we've had. And our keynote speaker was Jay O'Hara, who is a Quaker from the East Coast, who agreed to come out and and be the speaker. You know, Jay uh, speaks as a Quaker. And so he explained to people ahead of time that he was listening for spirit. If there were silences, it didn't mean he'd forgotten what he was saying. They should just hold on while the silence happened. And they could feel it. They could feel Spirit in what was happening. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that room while he was talking. And when I would walk down the halls while the workshops were happening, there was this buzzy energy. I mean, it was just very cool. And people loved that so much. They were like, oh, we have to do it again next year. And that group is still going. It hasn't been doing as much recently because we're all getting old and a pandemic happened and we had to meet on Zoom and etc. But that's the work I did in Seattle. And then I moved to Olympia and started restoring Earth Connection.
0: We'll get to that in a moment. So was that Faith Action Climate Team of Seattle, because there's Thurston Climate Action Teams also, I'm just confused where you're at.
1: Yeah, those are two different things. So FACT, as we call it for short, is a Seattle-based group, that's the Faith Action Climate Team, and when I moved to Olympia, there was a pre-existing group called Thurston Climate Action Team, and they had a very small staff, and I was brought on staff, and I worked part-time there for them for two and a half years. At that point, I thought, you know, I've done a lot of volunteer stuff. I would like to get paid. <laughs> and also they were working on policy work and I hadn't done as much of that. And I thought that would be really interesting to do. They were in the process of Passing a climate mitigation plan for where the capital of Washington is is Olympia, but it's a tri-city. It has two cities right next to it that sort of function almost like one, and they are also the county seat. So we organized always those three cities and the county. So we were in the process of getting this plan passed for the whole county. And that was the bulk of the work I did while I was there was getting the plan passed. I'm happy to say it has passed. I'm less happy to say, and now it sits on a shelf.
0: You know, Lynn and folks, we are speaking with Lynn Fitzhugh, who is founder of RestoringEarthConnections.org. The link's on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. I'm going to touch on a bunch of things that you've already talked about. Sure. You very cavalierly, a lot of our listeners, of course, are not Quaker. Most of my guests are not Quaker. So they may not have any sense of this whole thing about testimonies and how naturally you make it sound just so obvious that of course I'd be involved in working on this and of course my life would be dedicated to this. And in Quaker circles, that's not unusual to see or hear. Did you start out as a Quaker? You were raised Quaker? Yes,
1: I was raised Quaker.
0: So you were raised with this kind of thing in your household or did you just get involved with it more as you grew up?
1: Yeah, no, I was I was raised as a Quaker. And so to say a little bit about the testimonies, Quakers believe that if we listen, God can reveal the truth to us and that we can come into unity of an understanding of truth, but that it is also continuing revelation, that it is not fixed in stone, that it may evolve over time. So we call them testimonies rather than creeds, because, again, this is what we know to this point in time. In my lifetime, I do not remember us saying we had in my childhood, saying we had an environmental or any similar green one. But there now Quakers do talk about an environmental testimony. But historically, the peace testimony was the first one. It's why Quakers are known for pacifism, not serving in the military.
0: Well, don't forget the Nobel Peace Prize from 1947. Yes. That's kind of a clue that there's some peace connection there.
1: Yeah. There's also testimony on simplicity that arose during the time of slavery and was sort of a testimony about, well, you've seen the bumper sticker, live simply so others may simply live. I think that capsulizes it well. And the quality testimony was always the idea that there is that of God in everyone, so they need to be treated that way. So yeah, those have been underlying important values for me, and they've sort of guided the activism that I've done.
0: Did you go to college? Did you study activism or what?
1: I went to Earlham, which is a Quaker college, (laughs) and I was a poli-sci major. I had started out thinking I would go into politics because that's how you would create change. And about halfway through my poli-sci degree, I realized... No, it's actually a pretty corrupt process It involves you have to have a lot of money to run and people bribe people and backroom deals happen. And I started feeling that was not going to be a very good personality match for me. Also, I was studying more about the history of social change and I was realizing that politicians really more have responded to the pressure of social change movements. So at that point, I kind of realized, no, you're going to have to do social activism if you want to see social change. Then I discovered that doesn't pay very well, being a social change activist.
0: So how did you end up being a therapist?
1: Well, uh, because I did need a way to make a living, and I had been doing the Alternatives to Violence Project, which is a Quaker-based ministry in the prisons teaching nonviolence to prisoners. After some time of working with that, I was like, okay, you know, how are you going to make a living? And I thought about what had given me joy. And there's a moment in those workshops where people have these sort of aha moments where there's a kind of reevaluation of something and a kind of new insight into something. And I realized, oh, that's actually kind of psychotherapy. So I went back to graduate school and got a psychotherapy degree. And I have to say, it's been a very good combination with being an activist because you can't be a psychotherapist full time. I mean, you really would lose your own mind if you did so you know it's part-time work it pays well enough that if you live simply it's enough so I've been able to do my activism alongside of it
0: you know my wife is a psychotherapist has been since the late 80s oh
1: I did not know that
0: also a yoga teacher Mm -hmm. balance that but I understand your comment about how it could drive you crazy you might lose some of what makes psychotherapy valuable, counseling helpful to people. But I think there would be a tension between being a psychotherapist and being an activist. One of the things I think psychotherapy can teach you is an extra level of understanding of people's issues such that you are more empathic with them. Activism sometimes, maybe even often, necessitates not conflict, necessarily. You have to push. You have to change the status quo. I would think that that would kind of be attention for you. Plus, when you're doing psychotherapy, you tend not to yell. And at rallies, you want to lift up your voice. Do you still have a, a you know, this is what democracy looks like type of voice? Can you do that still?
1: I can, yes. Yes. I will say, surprisingly, I know a fairly large number of psychotherapists who are also climate activists. I think that when you love humanity, there are certain conclusions you come to, like we have to save it, you know. I don't really experience the tension you were talking about because of the way I do activism. If you look at theories of social change that range from Gandhi, Martin Luther King at one end, to... Oh, now I'm going to block on the name of the other guy. Um,
0: Abby Hoffman? (laughs) Well,
1: Abby was from that school. There is a school that's more, uh, you know, get in their face, embarrass them, call them out, make them look bad, you know, kind of school of thought. And, you know, just as a Quaker, that's never felt right to me, that you demonize the other side, that you try to embarrass them. Yeah, I... And then as a psychotherapist, I don't think that's how people change anyway. You don't change people by shaming them. So I've always been more interested in the Kingian approach, you know, and he said we come from love and you're trying to connect with the humanity and the other person and that sort of thing. And so that's been, you know, more of my approach. And I remember one time we had gone to see Patty Murray to lobby her about one of these things. And one of the activists with me got real, it was only the staff there, got real snippy with the staff, you know, what do you mean she's not here? And, oh, this is stupid. And I just used kind of demeaning language. And when we left on our way to Cantwell's office, I said, don't do that. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, that's a human being doing the best they can do at the moment. And how are you going to change anything by talking down to them? That's not going to work.
0: Actually, when I was doing more tax resistance stuff, the first year I did that, At a certain point, I I was kind of the key point player turning in my tax form, that kind of thing. But there was a wonderful group of about 15 people. At a certain point, I was in a different place, come back, and one of our people was standing there with his fist raised, shaking it, saying, we have our rights. And, And I just said, oh, wow, you're just undermining exactly the thing that I want to do. And so I changed my focus so that it came mainly in following years from the Quaker orientation, which is how I got connected with war tax resistance. So anyway, I understand the tensions that are there, social change, and some people think you can only get it by really pushing other people to the edge, not your view. And
1: I think we'd have to create pressure, but by a movement, you know, by so many voices that are calling for the same thing in, in maybe different ways that it becomes unescapable. But I don't think you do that by shaming people.
0: One of the things you mentioned, Lynn, is that climate change, the climate crisis that we're dealing with, really involved all of the other issues, the testimonies, the peace, simplicity, equality, all of that. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I was partly referring to, I said, um, all of the previous work I'd done. So I'd worked on anti-nuclear issues, anti-militarism issues, prisoners' rights, the UFW campaign for farm workers' rights. So I'd worked on all these campaigns before that, and every single one of them will be obliterated if we go the course with climate change. So that's what I meant by that.
0: How would those be obliterated? I mean, if we have nuclear war, I don't know that climate change is going to hurt nuclear. I don't know. I <laughs> I don't know how to say that one. Right. But.
1: Well, if it comes first, that's true. Um,
0: <laughs> and actually, I think the answer is that climate change makes nuclear war more likely because of the international pressures it will yes, bring to bear. which
1: we're already seeing right now. We're at much greater uh, nuclear risk than we've ever been before because there are more wars taking place now over resources. And those resource wars will increase and get worse under climate change.
0: But other things, simplicity, how does...
1: Well, you know, when we don't live simply, when we Americans use up the resources that are equivalent to five planets, while other countries are living well below that, that again is driving resource consumption. It's driving the extraction of fossil fuels and the heating up of our planet. So... People often will talk about climate change like we need to find some technological fixes for it. And there's a sort of not wanting to look at the fact that we actually are going to have to live differently
0: we are going to delve into the deeper part of the work, the more current work that Lynn FitzHugh is doing. The organization she founded called Restoring Earth Connection. But a couple more pieces I'm gonna follow up on what you said earlier, Lynn. You mentioned the founding of three fifty seattle dot org, which I think is going strong the it website. Is. 350seattle.org, and you're currently living in Olympia, and that's where the Thurston Climate Action Team is from. You mentioned the importance to you of dealing with climate change on that way as opposed to blockades of trains and boats and all that kind of thing. What is the different nature of the kind of thing that fact... Faith Action Climate Teams does. What's the kind of different activities? You, you spoke of having a conference. Mm-hmm. So is there a doing as well as the talking?
1: Yeah, that group has also done civil disobedience. We have gone into banks that were funding pipelines, and we've held prayer services in there and stayed on some occasions to the point of being arrested I have gone into banks with groups that were not faith-based, and it was much more of a sort of angry, shouting tone to the whole thing. We were sitting there praying, very different tone. One customer was heard to walk in and say, what's going on here? I thought I had come into my bank. It's like I've entered a church. So he could feel the energy of it. He could feel that there was this sort of prayerful thing going on. The police officers were like muting their walkie-talkies and trying to convince us that we should leave and not. they didn't want to arrest us, you know. It's just a different way of doing the work.
0: And you've talked a fair amount about your Quaker experience of activism. And anybody who knows much about Quakers knows this is centuries long, all the way from the founding back in the mid-1600s. What are the other religious and spiritual groups that are joining you in something like the Faith Action Climate Teams?
1: It's been ecumenical from the very beginning. I will say the Unitarians have the Quakers really outdone. There's a lot more Unitarians in the group, but we have Lutheran, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Buddhist several Jewish people. It really has been ecumenical. And at the conference, we had a Muslim speaker as well and a Native American speaker. And at the first conference, we asked the question, what does your faith tell you about climate change? And it was so interesting because everybody's answer was different. And yet there was this interwoven, very like just describing different paths up the mountain kind of experience.
0: I noticed in checking out your history on the internet that, for instance, back in 2013, you were writing articles, posting op-eds on Truthout. Is mm-hmm. uh, one of the things, and I just mentioned the three I saw. Yes, Virginia, there is a police state. <laughs> And I don't know if that's Virginia, the state, or because you were living in the West. No, it
1: it was a joke about the, yes, Virginia, Santa Claus.
0: There is a police state, putting our money where our hearts are, and the sacred cow of American tax spending. Any of those you care to comment about before we delve in more deeply to restoring Earth connection?
1: I think I won't. I mean, you're right, and I may have even written more once than that. I have a blog, which is called together on the living earth i do blog on there about climate change and there's some very interesting pieces on there i would say the part you just quoted is sort of a random period where i was sending out those and they were on all different topics and so i think that's probably a little bit of a stray
0: well there was a more interesting i think more applicable to what we're going to talk to about now an article in Yes! Magazine. Mm-hmm. And yes! Magazine is such an incredibly wonderful gathering. I love Yes! The main thing you were talking about was a book by Kim Stanley Robinson called The Ministry for the Future. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling that that's an important, pivotal, maybe a fundamental motivation, a visioning of the work you're doing. Could you talk about the book, that article, what you got out of that
1: The book Ministry of the Future, he is a science fiction writer and he's written a novel that is set, I think it was set 10 years out from when he wrote it, he wrote it in 2020, where he was imagining what had allowed us to get from 2020 to 2030, where we had turned the corner on climate change. The first chapter of the book, I always warn people, like, just gut it out, (laughs) Because the first chapter of the book starts with an absolute climate disaster, hundreds and hundreds of people basically frying to death in a heat wave. It's very hard to read first chapter, but he talks about it as a pivotal change point where the global community kind of woke up and said, oh my God, like we can't keep going this way which I have to say, I'll be very interested. We've now just had the three hottest days in recorded human history globally, and I'm sure a lot of related deaths during that time. And I'll be really interested to see what impact that has on consciousness. But anyway, in his book, he envisions that the UN creates a new division or agency called the Ministry of the Future. And a woman who is a Scottish an Irish activist is put in charge of it. And so part of the thing we kind of journey along with her, but there are chapters that go off in other different directions, telling other parts of the story. It is a hopeful book, ultimately, because he shows, at least in one imagined path, how we would get out of this mess. What was interesting to me was it included all kinds of solutions, including some that I don't agree with, like he has eco-terrorism taking place in the book, but really what you get is that by these multitude of paths, all pushing, 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 the change happens. I did a review of that book for Yes! Magazine, and I do recommend that book to people, especially people who are feeling a bit hopeless. And it was very interesting because while I was reading the book, one of the things he talked about, which was some shareholder activism stuff, actually had a very significant happening while I was reading the book. So some of the stuff he talks about, like it's not just the world of imagination.
0: Folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and my guest today is Lynn Fitzhugh. She's founder of an organization called Restoring Earth Connection, website restoringearthconnection.org. Of course, the link is on nordenspiritradio.org, along with links to all of my guests of the past 19 years who have been doing this program. It started in Eau Claire, Wisconsin on WHYS Radio, still broadcasts there, and now on another 35 to 45 stations, nationwide so please come to our site track down those stations post a comment on this interview and give us feedback and give us ideas of other people we should be talking to help build that connection because no one does this alone we count on you for support we do that financially but you know your prayers and actions your suggestion to your local community radio station they'd be carrying this program connecting us with guests all of those are ways in which you help make us be sustainable And our purpose is to make this earth and the people on it more sustainable. So please help us out however you can. Again, northernspiritradio.org. And remember to support those local community radio stations. Lynn Fitzhugh is here, restoringearthconnections.org. But along the way, founding of 350 Seattle, a co-founder of Faith Action Climate Team of Seattle, and working for Thurston Climate Action Team Olympia, Washington. Those are just a few of the things she's, She's been active and and you can look yeah. for her blog together on the living earth.blogspot.com the link again northern spirit radio let's talk about a few more mm-hmm. things though Lynn in that article in yes you started out by mentioning a couple of the kind of inspirational people you talked about Elise Spalding mm-hmm and her work in envisioning a future without war and it's like how do we envision a world without climate disaster Mm -hmm. and you also of course refer to the wonderful the work that reconnects yes i have a feeling that sets the stage for some of the work that you're doing as part of restoring earth connection am i guessing too much
1: No, you are correct. I will tell how I got to starting Restoring Earth Connection. And then it kind of came full circle for me back to Elise's work and to Joanna's work, which I had been introduced to both of those in my 20s. After I had been working for Thurston Climate Action Team doing this policy work for a while, I happened to read the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. That, for me, was really a life-changing book. And I've met many people who similarly say, you know, that was really a life-changing book. Robin is a Native woman who is also a botanist and, you know, went through university to train as such. She does an amazing job of both bringing in and talking about Western scientific paradigm and then Native indigenous knowledge paradigm and kind of weaving them together. But one of the points that she makes in the book is that we have to be in reciprocal relationship with the earth. She talks about that in many, many, many ways. Some of the policy work I had been doing with TCAT, right before I read the book was tree work. I was trying to protect trees because they sequester carbon, they draw it down. And I had approached that from what I would now say is a sort of Western colonizer mindset. Like, this is a solution. We do it because it's practical. We have to protect the trees because it's a practical thing to do. And while I was working with the trees, the trees kept teaching me things among other things, that they are living beings, that they're doing all kinds of things besides drawing down carbon. The more I learned about trees, the more I realized how disconnected we as humans are from the living earth. You know, when you listen to people talk about trees, they usually refer to them as wood or as ornamental objects. We don't tend to talk about them as living, and certainly not if we're about to cut them down. We don't talk about them as living. You know, there's this amazing science that's been done by Suzanne Samard, a a scientist up in British Columbia, discovering that the mycelium under the earth, these little fine hair-like white threads, connect, and that the trees push energy back and forth between them, and they communicate somehow through this mycelium. We still don't know exactly how, and they Protect each other, and the mother trees will protect the baby trees, and they will do more to protect their babies than the other trees, although they will still protect the other trees. Just this amazing, sort of mind blowing stuff about the ecosystem of which the trees are a part of and that we are a part of. They are drawing down carbon and they release oxygen. We breathe in oxygen and we breathe out carbon, CO2. We are in a symbiotic relationship with trees. Many people say they are the lungs of the earth. Yet we walk around completely oblivious to this. So Robin also talks a lot about trees in her book. So as the trees were teaching me, and then Robin was teaching me And I was getting frustrated with doing policy work with politicians who were coming up with kind of lame ways to solve problems, coming up with solutions that were another part of the problem. What came crashingly clear to me was we can't solve the problem of climate change while we're still disconnected from the earth, that we have to have an entire paradigm shift, As long as we're operating out of the paradigm shift that created climate change, we will not solve climate change. And it also became very clear to me at that point, too. I had been doing some work with indigenous people as part of my climate work, and then here's Robin, an indigenous person, sharing all this wisdom in the book. It became really clear to me that colonialism is the original sin for the United States. It brings an extractive mindset, I mean, if you look at what we did, we came over to this country and saw it as a place to extract resources from. We took things, We just blundered our way along, creating all kinds of pollution and messes and genocide and destruction. And that hasn't stopped. I mean, climate change is just another extractive nightmare in the chain of nightmares that's been going on. And so I think until we can start to grapple with this is our history and how do we heal that history, we are just continuing it. That really brought a lot of pieces together for me. And so in starting Restoring Earth Connection, what I'm really working on right now is paradigm shift. And that brought me quite happily back to Elise and to Joanna. And so Elise Boulding is the original founder of Peace Studies in the United States. She also, with a man named Warren Ziegler, created back in the 80s a workshop called Imaging a World Without Weapons you know, that was during the height of the Cold War and the nuclear weapons race. And her point at the time was, we had to have a vision of a world without these weapons, or we would not get anywhere. And so I have over time changed, Lisa's long dead, and I have over time changed the workshop to be imaging a sustainable planet. But it's really the same workshop, because when we tried to do the weapons workshop, we would see that we couldn't end militarism without changing our education system, our health system, our agricultural system. I mean, everything was all woven together Same thing about the climate crisis, you know, we are doing things that heat the planet in how we farm, how we build buildings, how we do transportation. I mean, I could just go on and on down the list. Pretty much our whole society is set up in ways that are sending carbon pollution or greenhouse gases anyway into the atmosphere. So the Imaging a Sustainable Planet workshop works just like the other one does. You start with a vision 30 years out of What does it look like if we're not in climate crisis? What does it look like if we don't have a military-industrial complex? And you get really clear on what does that look like? What does that look like? And then you do what she calls a backwards history. And you say, oh, so five years before that, what was happening that set it in place? Oh, okay, and five years before that, what was happening? And what's amazing about this process and doing it that way is if we try to start, you and I, from 2022— We're both of us going to run up against, well, there's Trump and there's this and there's that, you know, like all the things that are, you know, gun control, abortion, all these things that are coming down on our heads that feel blocked, stuck, frustrating. And we can't think past these blocks. But if we start with the vision and we feel the realness of it, then we can start to kind of see how could it come into being? How could it come? So this backward history gets us out of the stuck place. I love to do that work with people. Then the other piece that you said was about Joanna. Joanna Macy also started her work in the 70s, and she did a kind of workshop that was originally called Despair and Empowerment Work. Later, she changed it to The Work That Reconnects. And one of her, I think it is her most recent book, is called Active Hope, How to Get Out of the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. I love the subtitle.
0: As a therapist.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so some of us have done her workshops, calling them Active Hope workshops now. Joanna is a Buddhist eco-feminist. So her work has always been grounded in the idea that if we do not find a way to process our despair and hopelessness about the state our planet is in, then we're stuck and we just don't do anything because we sink into our despair. And so Joanna does workshops on what she calls the spiral that starts with gratitude. It moves to our pain for the world. And then it moves to what she calls seeing with new and ancient eyes, but it's that paradigm shift piece that I've been talking about. And then it goes to going forth, which is action steps. So when I first started doing climate change work, Joanna came up in my head and I thought, oh, those workshops that she was doing for our nuclear despair, those would be perfect for this. I wonder what she's up to. And literally uh, two days later, I saw a flyer saying that she was coming to Seattle and doing a 10-day workshop. And I was like, well, I know who's going to that workshop. (laughs) So I got trained by Joanna to do her workshops. Since starting Restoring Earth Connection, I've been doing Active Hope Workshops. I've been leading braiding sweetgrass, I call them action groups, and I'm really clear with people, we're not doing a book study. This is not a book group. We are working with the concepts in the book in terms of how do we live into them? How do we live into reciprocal relationship with the earth? And I've been doing tree work. And, you know, we're working to protect trees. So that's kind of an overview about restoring earth connection.
0: That's all a wonderful weaving, braiding so many things of your life together. Because on my way here to the FGC gathering... My wife and I have been touring around. we visited a lot of national parks and traveled off to see this flora and fauna along the way. One of the places we wandered through was a Big Redwood Grove. And just yesterday on campus here in Monmouth, Oregon, I met a tree or a bush or something. It seems like cousin it, only bigger. And so getting to know these different trees and plants, do you happen to have any particular connection to particular trees? Or maybe there's one in your yard who's named Fred? I don't know.
1: (laughs) That's a great question, actually. And there is a tree on this campus that is a 150-year-old tree. So there's some beauties on this campus. I just spent the morning under that one, the 150-year-old one. I didn't ask it its name, so I don't know if it's Fred or not. But yeah, Some of the work that I've gotten pulled into in the last year has to do with what is happening to our oldest forests in the Northwest. And there are studies now that show that the Northwest forests that have these magnificent giants that you were just talking about, they are second only to the Amazon, and some would say equal to the Amazon in drawdown. So British Columbia, Washington, Oregon. And the top of California have these mammoth trees before settlers came out here and logged them. There were fifteen hundred year old trees out here, you know wider than a man 's arm span could cover much of the old growth was logged over a hundred years ago, and what we have now is second growth, but that's still pretty magnificent if it's been allowed to stay. But in the state of Washington, the forests are owned by three parties, private parties like Warehouser who have pretty much logged them into plantation forests. They pretty much don't have old trees in them anymore. They have ones that they'll let grow for 30 years, then they'll cut them, and then they'll replant them, and they just rotate around doing that. There are federal forests, which Oregon has also. So Oregon has only private and federal, and the federal ones in Washington are all federal parks. That's how they exist as federal land. But the state of Washington also owns forests, They are managed by the Department of Natural Resources in our state and until May of last year, they were protected by certain things that had happened during the spotted owl fights, and I'm not sure exactly what changed on a federal level about policy, but they didn't need to do it the way they had been doing it anymore, and suddenly they removed the protections that they'd had for these older forests that were over 100 years old. We have a lot of ones that are also just 80 years old, but you know, 80, 100-year-old forests, it's a big deal. So every month now, they've been bringing up for auction 10 to 8 parcels, and at least half of them are primarily made up of this second growth, and it's devastating. So we've been organizing people to go in there and give testimony and try to argue for the life of the trees. It has impacted the board, but they are still making the votes. We went to the legislature. We got a few new solutions out of the legislature, but they have to be implemented by the Department of Natural Resources. And we have also gone to our county commissioners, and like in my county and in two other counties in Washington, we've gotten the county commissioners to say to them, stop logging the trees in our county. We don't want them logged. We want them saved. At first, they didn't know what they wanted to do with that. It was sort of like, what? The commissioners are saying no? And now enough pressure has been put on them that they just sent out letters to those three counties saying, okay, we want to have a meeting with you to discuss how we manage the trees in your forest. I don't know yet what's going to come out of that, but I have at least some hope about that. You know, this is the kind of work I mean, people have said to me over the decades, you know, well, I don't know how you can really stop climate change. It's just mammoth. It's it's this huge, huge widespread problem. Right. So you gotta pick apart you know, some people care about transportation, lots to do on that. Some people care about buildings, lots to do on that. Some people care about agriculture, we need really need to have regenerative agriculture and not the commercial petroleum based agriculture we have. Some people care about that. Some people care about trees, pick your thing. There's plenty of it, but we need people and we need them now because it's getting worse.
0: So does that message come from Lynn Fitzhugh, the generalized climate activist, or does that come from Lynn Fitzhugh, active with Faith Action Climate Teams, or does that come from Restoring Earth Connection or someplace else? I'm, You said we say, yeah. and I'm, I'm not sure which we you were speaking of.
1: All of the above. <laughs> I think everyone I know in different movies, movement groups are like, come on, people come out and volunteer. You know, the corporations pay people a lot of money to do full time destruction of the environment. So it's going to take the volunteer work of the many more people to begin to match that. That's what we're up against.
0: Just a couple more things I going to ask you about Lynn before we have to end this Spirit in Action episode. One of the things is, I noticed for Restoring Earth Connection, you have a board of directors. The president of your board of directors, I noticed worked for the Department of Ecology and I had no idea there was a Department of Ecology. I figured maybe there was a in Wisconsin they call it Department of Natural Resources, there's environmental departments all this but I've, this is the first Department of Ecology I've run into. What's that history?
1: I did not know other states didn't have that. I mean Washington has always had that as long as I've lived here and it functions sort of like the EPA on the national level. It's our EPA.
0: So a new name and a new function that I think is well needed. Yes. But on the other hand, the nomenclature actually of ecology is an increased sensitivity to the bigger world that we need to be connected with.
1: Yes. I wish the Department of Natural Resources would change their name because if you look at that name, it really speaks to the problem, right? We're looking at nature as resources to just extract
0: Exactly. One other thing, it's kind of a detail and part of it. You talk about trees and valuing them entering into relationship with them. One of the things over the last 20 years that I've grown in is my connection with foraging. Sam Thayer, who's the most prominent, I think, author in terms of foraging nationwide, his books are very well known, and his field guide is just about to come out, fruit of more than seven years of work on that, and he's a friend of mine. He says that we care about that which we know, and most of us do not know. I remember something funny my son said when he was just not yet three years old, we were playing an imaginary game, and he I said, here, Chris, I'm trying to climb up this banana tree. I want to get a banana. Can you help me up? Oh, I'll help you, Dad. And then he said, here, Dad, here's a bread tree I want to climb up. Well, at three years old, he didn't have a clear idea of where bread came from. And when you don't know something, caring about it is not an option. So is foraging, from your point of view, is that part of the solution?
1: Well, I think you just made a good case for that. I mean, I definitely agree with the point that we have to have familiarity with something to care about it. I mean, that when I say, you know, restoring earth connection, the connection part there is the really important part, right? I grew up in the Midwest before I moved to the Northwest where I've lived most of my life. And I'm ashamed to say that until fairly recently, I could still name plants, flowers, birds in the Midwest, But the ones out here, I mean, they look familiar to me now, but it's like, oh, that red flower or, you know, whatever, right? So part of the work for me recently has been trying to learn the names of these things because it does bring you more into relationship with them. I think in my workshop, which I've been leading this week, one of the assignments was to have everybody look up, where does your water come from? Now, if you think about this, We will all die within, I don't know, 24 hours or something if we don't have water. And yet most of us don't actually know where our water comes from. Oh, the tap, right? Like that's like the bread tree. And so how do you know to protect your water supply if you don't even know where it's coming from? And some of this cutting down of trees that I was talking about is going to bring all kinds of both rubble, crap from the cutting as well as pesticides, because they spray it after they cut into the watershed. Some of the watersheds that will be affected are the sole water supply for certain places. And in the Northwest, our streams are salmon bearing. And so it puts at risk the salmon. I mean, we've spent lots of money and time in the state trying to save salmon and yet here comes the logging that's going to do more destruction to the salmon. And this is sort of what I mean about if you're not familiar with your ecosystem, the one that you are depending upon for life, you don't see the things that are happening that are happening wrong to it. You don't see the warning signs. You don't see the efforts it's making to tell you danger, danger, Joanna talks about whole systems theory. That's a lot of important concepts that she talks about. And in whole systems theory, there are feedback loops. And the feedback loops are designed to be corrective so that we can reach new equilibrium. But we are not hearing our own feedback loops. It used to drive me crazy. It's finally stopped. But it used to drive me crazy that the news would report about a drought or a hurricane or a fire And they would just report it as if, oh, a hurricane happened. Oh, a forest fire happened. And they wouldn't say this is caused by climate change. And I would listen to people who did not understand that that was related. It was just an event they thought was happening. So, you know, we have to know. We have to learn.
0: i got one more question for Lynn Fitzhugh. About two months ago, I interviewed the author of a book called I Want a Better Catastrophe. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> what because <a> great title. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: you studied climate crisis deeply enough to know that the window for avoiding crisis, a catastrophe, the window's really closed. There will be some kind of catastrophe. There will be massive loss of species. There will be areas of the world which will be uninhabited because of this. So the catastrophe is there, mm-hmm. but the question is What degree or how far can we pull back from that? Mm -hmm. You're talking about restoring Earth connection, and I'm wondering if you yourself are feeling the hope that that restoring can happen in time to prevent the worst of the catastrophes.
1: So this will seem like a funny answer, but I've given up on worrying about whether it's too late because the scientific evidence is it is too late. Like we have already really messed up. But that brings me to the question of if you are on the Titanic, how then shall you live? You know, do you just try to make sure you're the first person out in the few little lifeboats they have? Or do you try to act with support and kindness to the other people around you? And interestingly enough, some of the things we need to do to mitigate the worst of the disaster are actually the same things we have to do to try to prevent additional greenhouse gases. What that suggests to me is we have work to do. And I went many years ago to see Mount St. Helens. And the docent who was there pointed out that the lake at the bottom, right after the volcanic eruption happened, people thought, oh, it's dead. The scientists thought it's dead. It'll never recover. It's just hopeless. And it has recovered. That was a shock to the scientists. And in the process of their having to try to understand how did it do that, they discovered things that they didn't already know about it, which I could go into, but I won't for the sake of time. One of the things that that profoundly brought to me is we don't know everything. The earth has wisdom way beyond that which we are aware of. It has ways of healing itself if we would get out of its way, if we would stop wrecking havoc on it. It has ways of healing itself. I have no idea at what point it can still bring itself back. I don't want to find out how far (laughs) you can go. (laughs) I just think we have work to do and that we have to live with kindness with each other as we face a catastrophe unbeknownst in any time in human history.
0: Thank you, Lynn, for bringing your kind and passionate spirit here. A life lived both for the betterment of the entire planet without causing more damage along the way. It's a narrow road sometimes to walk, and I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for joining us today for Spirit in Action.
1: You're very welcome, Mark, and thank you for keeping the show going.
0: Again, our guest has been Lynn Fitzhugh. The website most prominently you want to perhaps track her down by now is restoringearthconnection.org, although her path includes 350seattle.org and Faith Action Climate Teams and many, many more organizations where she's been doing her healing work for the earth. You can find them all on northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Our lives will feel the echo